let's uh, let's go to God in prayer before we get started. Father, we we thank you um, for give, being the God who gives us a gospel, um, for giving us your Son who we we don't deserve. Um, Father, I pray that you you give us a glimpse of what Moses saw when he asked to see your glory. Um, Father, I ask that you you make us a people who who sees Christ, um, and and we need you to reveal it to us. We we it doesn't matter how smart we are or how much understanding we have. We we are utterly dependent on you to to give us the grace to hear, to see, to preach. Um, so, Father, I pray that you you be with us uh, throughout this worship, and that we that I represent your Son well. And that we uh, we walk away having a deeper love for for you. In your son's name, we pray. Amen. There there's a scene in Lord of the Rings, um, which I never get tired of seeing. I don't like Lord of the Rings because of how long it is, but I always love watching the scene because it's in the beginning. Um, but you see Bilbo. He just got done with his party, and he's back at home. He's packing up, uh, and he's about to set out. And Gandalf shows up um, because he wants to get the ring back. And for those of you who haven't seen the movie, essentially Bilbo has this magic ring, which is functioning like a cancer, where the longer you have it, the more it just enslaves you, it just consumes your, your mind and your will. Um, and you see it gain to that point with The Hobbit. Um, and so you see Gandalf just gently encouraging him just to give him the ring. Um, and over time, you just see Bilbo become more and more hostile towards this. You see him just beginning to resist more and more to get angrier and angrier. And the whole time, you just see Gandalf just patiently just keep on going. Um, and then uh, it gets to a point where, where Bilbo points at him and accuses him of wanting the ring for himself, and that's the only reason he's trying to help. And then at that point, you, you immediately just see the house begin to shake. The lights go out. The, the whole house is consumed with darkness at this point. And in a loud, billowing voice, Gandalf just, just yells out, warning him not to take him as a mere wizard of, of tricks. And during this time, you see Bilbo just terrified. He's up against the wall. He's afraid he's going to die at this point. And then you just see the darkness slowly begin to fade. The lights begin to dim back, back up. And just you see this very tender and gentle look in, in Gandalf's eyes. And he just looks at him and he says, I'm a friend just trying to help you. Let, let me help you. And this hobbit who is, is one second pinned, pinned against the wall, terrified, is now running to him, taking refuge, like ask, pleading for him to help him. And for the past few months, we've been in the book of Isaiah, where Rob has been preaching back and forth God's wrath and judgment, fall, immediately followed by his love and mercy. And, and we see a very similar picture going on here. A couple of weeks ago, we were preaching um, on Matthew 11, uh, verses 20 through 24, where you see Jesus uh, j divinely judging the cities where most of his works have been done um, because they didn't repent. And there you see this, this, this clear picture of just how wrathful and serious God becomes when you reject his good gifts that are meant to lead you to repentance. And the ironic thing is we get to the very next text, which we're going to be in today, which is verses 25 through 30. Um, so y'all can go ahead and turn there, Matthew 11, 25 through 30. And we see that, that, that wrath and divine judgment immediately contrasted with one of the most comforting texts in the entire New Testament. 
And so we're going to be looking at three statements concerning salvation that we see in this text. Three statements concerning salvation. Matthew 11, verse 25, it says, At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The, the funny thing about this text is, is this is one of the, next to John 3, 16, this is one of the most quoted and, and memorized verses. Um, whether you're Calvinist, Arminian, or anywhere in between, everyone loves this passage. And when you read in its context, it's immediately um, applied to the two most offensive doctrines you see in Scripture. You have the most loved and cherished text that everyone, everyone goes to immediately connected to the doctrine of hell, which is the whole point of Matthew saying at that time in verse 25 is he's saying this is directly connected to the judgment on these three cities that we see in the last text. But we also see that it's connected to the, the doctrine of predestination, of election. We see that in verses 25 through 26. And the first reality, the, the first uh, statement concerning salvation we see is that the Father reveals salvation to little children. We see this in 25 through 26. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. So the, the, the first thing we need to ask is we, the, the, we see that the Father is, is intentionally and actively hiding these things from these people. And we need to ask, what, what are these things that he's hiding? And I would say that what he's hiding is the things needed for salvation. It's the, not just the knowledge of who Christ is, but it's, it's the spiritual illumination to embrace these truths. Um, you know, a lot of people have this mindset that the only thing keeping people from repenting is, is uh, just a lack of evidence or, or things like that. And the whole time you see God just, just begging, pleading, knocking on your door just to let, let him in. And that's not what we see in this text. In fact, in Matthew 13, when Jesus is speaking in parables and the disciples ask him, why are you speaking like this? He clearly says that it's because he doesn't want them to understand lest they repent. <clears throat> the, the way I always think of it is, is the unbeliever has something called spiritual cataracts. I work at an eye clinic, so this is all I'm thinking about all day. Um, you, this is why you can have unbelievers who hear clearly stated truths day after day after day. You can have unbelieving children who grow up in the church for 20 years hearing solid doctrine and never embrace it. And on top of that, they, they may even affirm it. They may even agree with it, but they never actually truly believe it. And that's because this cataracts is blinding them from their need for the, these truths. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So in other words, you, 
you ha- whenever man tries to discern spiritual truth, he's always trying to discern it in his flesh. You need the lens that is only given by the Holy Spirit to, to truly understand what Scripture says. <clears throat> and the specific people that, that God is hiding these truths from is the wise and understanding. And here he, he's using this in a, in a sarcastic way. Um, these are the, he's referring to the scribes, the Pharisees, the lawyers, uh, the people who in their own eyes have it all figured out. And in fact, whenever Jesus even tells them that they're blind, you, you see that the response isn't to ask for wisdom, to ask for clarification. You see them just being offended at the idea that they might be blind. <clears throat> and this is a good reminder for us that God doesn't give wisdom to pri- the, the, those who are prideful. It's the, the, the most wise people you see in this life are always going to be the humblest. And, and every one of us in this room are always going to be in situations where God is going to test us to see if he's going to grant us further wisdom. And those tests are often going to look like we, um, a brother or sister comes to us trying to correct us. And we always have two options. We can either, in our pride for arrogance, just say we disagree with it and blow off what they're trying to confront us with, whether it's, it's our actions or just a, a, doctrine, a doctrinal error. Um, or we can, in humility, we evaluate our own beliefs. We, we calibrate. You know, one, one thing Paul tells Timothy is that we need to not only look over our lives, but we need to look over our doctrines. And if you're isolating yourself, your doctrine is always going to decline. You always need an outside pair of eyes to, to constantly reevaluate you and to make you rethink. <clears throat> First Corinthians 3.18, this is why Paul says, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become uh, a fool that he may become wise. And one very interesting thing about verse 25 is we specifically say, in some translations it says that um, Jesus rejoiced. Um, we see this in, in the account of Luke where he rejoiced in the Holy Spirit that the Father had hidden these things. And the reason this is so interesting is what happened right before this. We see him going to these cities intentionally doing all these miracles because he wanted them to repent. And then we, we, we immediately see him thanking God for hiding these things and keeping them from repenting. The, the, this almost sounds schizophrenic. This almost sounds like his, he, he's having contrasting desires. And a good way to think of this is Jesus had a clear desire and genuine desire for these cities to repent. But he also had another desire that was greater than that first, which was to see God glorified. You know, you, you could think of this as the revealed will of God, which is another way of saying um, the will that God has made known to us in Scripture. You know, um, 2 Peter 3.9 is an example of this. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But you also see, you look at, you look at the world, and you see that uh, the way is narrow. You see most people are going to, go, going to hell. And this is where his second will comes in, which is his secret will. This is where, be, unbeknownst to us, and because of all uh, finite minds, we're never going to understand it. But God often allows people to violate his will so that he's more glorified in either redeeming it or judging them for doing it. A perfect example of this is Isaiah 10 when you see ju- God judging the Assyrians. 
you know, it, you look at chapter 19, it specifically says that God rose these, these enemies up to chastise Israel. You see that he's using these people intentionally as an axe. But then it, it may be false with him judging these people for just doing his will. Um, God is clearly not, not pleased with murder. Yet Isaiah says that it pleased him to crush him, referring to Jesus on the cross. <clears throat> and when we, when we think about how Jesus was rejoicing at how the Father hid these things from these people, that's a good reminder for us that faithful evangelism is not dependent on the reception of it. You know, so, so often we fall in the trap of being very man-centered in our approach where we think that Unless we develop a friendship with that person, we, we can't tell them the gospel because we may offend them. We think that unless we, we have some kind of uh, event um, and win the person over, unless we give them money or shoes or whatever, uh, we, we have no right to, to give them the gospel and confront them over their sin. And, and what we see is in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, 13 through 16, is that the spreading of the knowledge of Christ is a fragrance to God, whether it's accepted or rejected. There, there's never going to be a point where saying the gospel or confronting someone over it is counterproductive. The, the word of God never comes back void. And the second thing we see is, is, is that the Father reveals these things to who? To the, the little children. And when he's speaking of little children, what he's referring to are those who are dependent on him. Not just those who are dependent, but those who are embracing that dependence. Proverbs 11.2 says, when, the, when pride comes, then comes disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs 25.9 says, uh, he guides the humble in what is right and teaches them his way. See, when, when you have a kid, that kid is dependent on you for every aspect of his life. He, he can't bathe himself. He can't dress himself. He can't shelter himself. He, he is 100%, his life is fully dependent on the parents taking care of him. And that, that's exactly how it is for the believer. <clears throat> we, you know, oftentimes we get discouraged just over our devotional life. We, we, when we try praying, it always feels like it's just hitting the ceiling and it never feels like it's getting anywhere. And the prayers that God loves the most are the ones that are childlike. Those are ones that he always answers. He loves to answer those prayers. You know, if, if you struggle with prayer, pray for God to teach you how to pray. If you struggle with desiring to pray, pray for God to give you that desire. It's, it's the Holy Spirit that makes you willing and able to do good works. That includes prayer. <clears throat> and so one thing we need to ask is, how does the Father reveal these things to little children? How, how does he reveal salvation to little children? A perfect example of this is, is uh, in Galatians 1.15, where we see Paul recount his conversion experience. And this is what he says. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles. See, as Paul is recounting his conversion, he's specifically saying that it was the father who revealed the son to him. When, when we look at how each person in the Godhead um, operates when, as far as revelation goes, what we always see is um, they typically don't shine the spotlight on themselves. They always shine it on the other person within the, the triad. 
the Holy Spirit is always trying to draw attention to the Son. The Father is always drawing attention to the Son. The Son is always drawing attention to the Father. And, and we look at that, and what we see is just this, this, um, this immense gratification of selfless, uh, selflessness where they are pleased just to make the other person known. And it never conflicts each other because they're, all in, they're in perfect harmony. And in verse 26, Jesus makes a statement that uh, uh, this was the gracious will of the Father. Turn, we, turn with me to Matthew 19 real quick. Matthew 19, we're going to look at verses 13 through 26. Oftentimes when we read the story of the rich young ruler, um, we, we forget to plug it in with the, the passage right before where we see the account of little children. Um, and the reason this is important to do is you, you, miss, you miss that big contrast on how you see Jesus reacting to the children and the, and the Pharisee versus how you see the apostles react to these two people. So let's look at verses 13 through 15 first. <clears throat> then children were brought to him that he may lay his hands on them and pray. The disciples rebuked the people. But Jesus said, let, let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, uh, for to such belongs the kingdom of heaven. And he laid his hands on them and, and went away. So right there, we see the first account. We see little children coming to Jesus. And how does he react? He's, he's, he wants them to do it. He's embracing them. He's welcoming them. And then you look at the apostles, the people who have been studying under Jesus one-on-one, and they're rebuking these people. They, they have the mentality that we, we, Jesus has more important things to do than to, to talk to little children. Don't, don't get away. Don't distract us. Just go away. Let us do our own thing. And then Jesus rebukes them. And now let's look at the second part. Let's see how that contrasts with the rich young ruler. <clears throat> In verse 16. And behold, a man came up to him saying, Teacher, what good thing must I do to, to have eternal life? And he said to him, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you would enter life, uh, keep the commandments. He said to me, which ones? And Jesus said, you shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept, what do I still lack? And Jesus said to him, if you would be perfect, go sell what you possess and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. And Jesus said to his disciples, Truly I say to you, only with difficulty will a rich person enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished, saying, Who then can be saved? But Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but with God all things are possible. You look at that, and what you see is they don't rebuke the, the rich young ruler for approaching them. And in fact, when he's turned away, they start freaking out because they, they, they're wondering, if there's no hope for him, what hope do we have? See, at the time, when, um, whenever someone had riches and, and you know, prosperity and all these things, that was, um, they viewed it as a sign that God's hand was on them. And so they're looking at this Pharisee, and they're like, man, this is the Paul washer of our days. He's more righteous than we are. And then Jesus tells them, you know, you're looking on the outward. 
Only the little children are going to be the ones who enter heaven, not the prideful, not the ones who think they've kept all the commandments, not the ones who think they're good. And the reason God does it this way, the reason this, this order of setting things where it's the little children who are revealed these things and not the wise and understanding is because that gives us no grounds to boast. When you have utter dependent and needy children who enter the kingdom of God, that's always because 100% God did the work. God's not going to share his glory with anyone. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27 through 29, it says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may might boast in the presence of God. My, my old pastor had a really good picture for this uh, that, that's always stuck out with me is, you know, if, if, if the devil was playing a, a basketball game, he's going to go, be going after the NBA players and the, the athletes and those who are just all over, the, you know, like number one on the tier. And when you see Jesus, God, he's picking the people at the nursery home. <laughs> he's picking the ones who can't walk. He's picking the ones in wheelchairs. He's picking the ones who um, are just full of dementia. <laughs> and that's because God's more glorified by, by crushing the wisdom of this world with needy people like that. You know, that, 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 should, that should make us be a people who desires to be dependent. You know, if, if, if you want to be used by God, the key is to become more dependent on him. The second statement concerning salvation that we see is that salvation is revealed through Jesus. We see this in verse 27. And here Jesus is talking about how all, all the authority has been given to him by the Father. And um, one thing to notice is, is look at how the Father is the one doing the giving here. The Father's not receiving these things. He's doing the giving to the Son. And, and I would encourage everyone, when you're reading Scripture, pay attention to when it's the Father explicitly doing something versus when the Son is doing something. Oftentimes we fall in this trap of thinking that, you know, paying attention to those little nuances and seeing how each person in the, in the Godhead is functioning, that's just for the theologians and the seminary students. Um, but we're, we're commanded to, to learn about Jesus. Um, when, a few weeks ago, James White came to the seminary and he was teaching a class, um, and we were talking about the trihead. And a pastor in the class asked him the question of, how do you, what's the hook to get people to see the importance of learning about how the person the persons within God work and operate. And James White quoted 2 Peter 3.18. <clears throat> but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. L learning about, be, everyone's called to be a theologian. <laughs> it, it, learning about these kind of things isn't optional. We're, we're commanded to do it. And in fact, just, just realize this, is Christians have been adopted into a relationship that not even the angels have. This is something that we often take for granted. And, and so often the reason we are so discontent with our lives, our jobs, our families, all these things is because we don't relish the treasure that we've already received for those who believed. And one way to develop a greater appreciation for this is to learn about these kind of things. 
when you see about how each person in the Godhead is operating in relation to each other, you see a clearer picture on how, how harmonious they are. You see how much they love each other. They see, you see how much they delight in each other. When you see of how much Jesus delights in the Father, that makes you want to delight in him more. <clears throat> and one, the way we see the Father operating is that he's the one who decrees who the elect are. See, Jesus didn't, um, the Father did not come down and die on the cross. Jesus was not the one who, who uh, descended like a dove during his baptism. Each person is not do, always doing the same thing. And one, one place that we see that the Father and what he does is elect is in Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 5. Um, in fact, go ahead, go ahead and turn there with me real quick. Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> verses 3 through 5. <clears throat> All right. Blessed be God and Father, if you're taking notes, so called Father, of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places. Even as he chose us, underline chose, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. Verse 5, he predestined us, underline that, for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. See, what we see is that the Father is the one decreeing and, and what he's given Jesus the authority to do is to execute what he's already decreed. The things that he's giving him is, is uh, the means and the, the sheep that he's meant to redeem. <clears throat> Turn with me to John chapter 17 real quick. John chapter 17. <clears throat> and we're just going to look at the first three verses. All right, verse 1. When Jesus has spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. So, so right there, one thing we already see just in that verse is that the whole reason Jesus wants God to put him on display is so that he could be put on display. And then verse 2, he says, Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to him whom you have given. You look at that verse, and we see that the Father has given these people over to Jesus so that he can give them eternal life. And then the last one, verse 3, and this is eternal life, that they know you and the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. See, that's what eternal life is. Eternal life is knowing God. It's having that spiritual cataract removed where you see God for who he truly is. And we look at the second half of verse 27, back, back in Matthew 11. And he, you know, this, this passage is often referred to as the gospel of John and Matthew. Because when, in verse 27, when, he, when Jesus is saying that no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, this, this is the exact kind of language we see all throughout John. You know, like, if you, like the passage that Ernie read earlier, we see, we see that language used right there. Where have you seen me, you've seen the Father. And um, when we look at this text, 
what we see is we see just how close and intimate that relationship is between Jesus and the Father. We see an intimate knowledge that is ex- ex- exclusive between the God, Godhead. You know, a, a good way to think of it is, you know, God has attributes that can, can, to a certain degree, be communicated to us. You know, we can, we can understand to a degree uh, the wrath of God. We can understand his mercy. We can understand his love. We can understand his patience. And that's because we're made in the image of him. So we can experience those same things. We're never going to be able to understand them to the fullest degree because God is infinite. These attributes are to an infinite degree. Only Jesus can understand these things. But then you have other attributes um, which you can't communicate, like the Trinity. <laughs> the, the second you start trying to come up with some picture to describe the Trinity, you always get into heresy. <laughs> in fact, in fact, in, in the Sunday school class, one of the kids, I, I, I brought the Trinity and explained it. And she looks at me and she's like, that's confusing. That doesn't make sense. I was like, yeah, it's not supposed to. <laughs> There's nothing in, in this world like the Trinity. There's nothing you can explain it. You know, and it's the same way with, with God's self-existence, the way he's always existing and turning past, not needing anything outside of himself. That's completely foreign to us mere creatures. <clears throat> and the same thing with God's omniscience, his omnipotence, his all-knowingness, his all-powerfulness. Those are things that only the Son can understand. And that's exactly why when you see the Son, you see the Father. The passages that Ernie read today, John 14, 8-9, we see that Philip is asking Jesus to show him the Father. And what's Jesus' response? You've been with me this whole time, and you, and you still don't realize that you've seen the Father? <laughs> you know, we, um, Hebrews 1, 3 talks about how he is the radiance and glory and the exact imprint of his nature. See, Jesus and the Father are not the same person, but they have the same nature. That, that's a big difference, because you get a heresy at that point if you start saying they're the same person. And one reason that's helpful for us to know is you can tell a lot about a person and where they stand with God based off what they think of Jesus. The Jehovah's Witness who thinks he's just a good teacher, the moment who thinks that he's a created being and Lucifer's brother, they don't see him as God. You know, the, the unbeliever who knows the gospel, they can cite it, they can tell who Jesus is, they even say he's God. But when you push into the life, you see that the way they function is that Jesus is a, a hippie God that is okay with their sin, that lets them do whatever they want. And what you see very quickly is that they don't believe in the biblical Jesus. They, they have a false idol they've made that they stamp the name Jesus onto to make themselves feel better. And the last point, which is the main point of the text um, that I want to spend most time on, is that salvation is offered to all. This third statement concerning salvation is that salvation is offered to all. And we see this in verse 28 through 30. And I want you to notice the first word here, come. This is is very interesting because we have Jesus... Not, not. It's, this isn't optional. He's commanding for everyone to come to him. But what he, what did he just say in the verses twenty five, twenty six? He said that no one can come unless the Father reveals these things to him. <laughs> yeah, that doesn't stop him from telling all of us to come to him. And what that tells us is that spiritual inability does not negate our moral responsibility. 
just because you are incapable of doing something without God doesn't mean that you're still not responsible to do it. The unbeliever cannot repent unless God grants it to them. But they will still be judged if they don't repent. Now, and oftentimes people are going to say, well, that's not fair. <laughs> By what standard? <laughs> that's just your opinion. You know, our stand for truth and what is right is Scripture, and that's clearly what Scripture is saying here. Donald McCloyd, uh, in his book, Compel Them to Come, really good book. It's like 50 pages. He makes a good observation that the only time people push back on uh, the idea of predestination or election is in the area of salvation. They, they don't really think about it in other areas of their life. No one questions on whether or not God has predestined you to take a shower this morning. Well, I don't know. There may be a couple of you who, who question that. Um, but that doesn't stop you from taking a shower. You know, God did not, you, you don't think about it on whether or not God predestined you to get out of bed this morning, but you still get out of bed. <laughs> Meaning, if, if you have, if you have, if you're overthinking it and you have the objection of, I don't know if I could come because I don't know if I'm elect. The way you know you're elect is if you come. <laughs> and notice the second word here is he says, come all. Who labor and heavy laden. He doesn't say come most of you who labor, come some of you. He says all who, who labor. <clears throat> and and I remember a few years ago when I, um, you know, when I was really getting heavy into Calvinism and the doctrines of grace, I struggled with my evangelism because I never knew if I could tell someone in a genuine way, if you repent and turn to Christ, you will have salvation. Because I didn't know if they were elect or not. I, there, there, there was no telling. Would that offer still stand if God did not elect them? And one thing we see is that Jesus knew that these three cities in verses 20 through 24 were not elect. He knew that Capernaum and, and all these other places were going to hell, but that didn't stop him from giving them a genuine offer. In fact, the whole reason he has just grounds to give them harsher condemnation for rejecting this offer is because it was a genuine offer. So when, when, when we see Jesus evangelizing and proclaiming the gospel, it's never in the sense of he gives someone the gospel and they say, okay, I'll accept it. Jesus is never going to say, well, I, you, you won't actually elect. I, I, I wasn't actually meaning that. <laughs> when uh, In Matthew 22, when we look at the wedding parable, when you see the person going street to street, every, inviting everyone to the wedding, um, and it gets to the end where you see the king kick out that one guest, what's the reason he kicks the guest out? It's not because he lacks a genuine invitation to the wedding. It's because he's clothed in his own righteousness rather than Christ's righteousness. And in fact, even when he kicks him out, the king still calls him friend. And, or in Numbers 21, when, when God tells Moses to, to build that bronze serpent, um, what does he say? He says, everyone who looks on it will be saved. He doesn't just say only that of true Israel who look on it will be saved. He says everyone who looks at it will be saved. Meaning that if you're here, I don't care how heinous your past is. I don't care how bad your sin is. I don't care how much you're still struggling right now. Is God still invites you in a genuine loving way to come to him. You still have a gospel you can go to. And the second description we see here is that we're, we're, he says, for all who labor and are heavy laden to come. 
And the immediate context here is, is, is you, what you see the Pharisees constantly doing is adding to the law and forcing these, these additions on the people where it's just unbearable and it's just discouraging. And, and you, you see this in the very next chapter when, when Jesus and his disciples are eating the grain. What happens? The Pharisees immediately come and rebuke them. <laughs> when you see Jesus in a, in just lovingly healing people, giving them their sight back, allowing them to walk, you don't see the Pharisees rejoicing. You see them rebuking and getting angry that he broke the Sabbath, that he broke their traditions. <clears throat> and, and that's just causing people to labor. When, when people are laboring to obey something outside of Scripture, or even Scripture at times, but with the wrong motives, they are laboring. They are heavy. The whole point of the law is to be a mirror that shows you how inadequate you are to do this on your own. The whole point of it is to show you that it doesn't matter how hard you labor, you, you need a savior. <clears throat> a while back, a few years ago, I was, I was talking with someone over lunch, and I was, I was evangelizing them. Um, and they, they were struggling with drugs at the time. And I had them open the Bible up to 1 John uh, 1.9, where it says that no one who practices sin has the truth in them. Because those who have the seed of God abiding in them can't continue in sin. And I had him read that, and you just saw fear and confusion on his eyes. And he, he stormed out because he didn't know what to say. And you look at him to this day, and what you see is he's now going to church. He is no longer doing drugs. He's trying to pray. He's trying to read the Bible. And what you see is not someone who repented. You see someone who's just trying hard. You see that because he has no joy in this. He has no peace. You just see, in fact, you see it in, in anxiety and an uneasiness just growing in him day by day. And oftentimes as Christians, we forget that sanctification, the idea that um, killing sin is a lifelong process. We, we, we often feel like it should just be a, a lightning bolt that, that zaps us and gets all of our sin away. <laughs> That's not what this Christian life is. And the reason that is is because when you are forced to constantly, day after day, go to the same Savior asking for deliverance, asking for strength, asking for wisdom on how to kill this sin, God is using that to cultivate a further dependence on him. He's using it to make him more childlike. And when we get discouraged, what we often do is try to abide in our own efforts and ourselves rather than in Christ, rather than the true vine. We try to force our uh, own sanctification rather than just relying on the Spirit. And some ways that you know when people are doing this is they're no longer confessing their sin to God. They, they feel like they have to earn up some kind of righteousness or be, or be good for a week before they can go to God in prayer. You, you see this, this unbalanced view of God and his mercy and his good. You see this overemphasis of his wrath. And another thing is you see people withdrawing from the church. They, they isolate themselves because they because of the shame. When you abide in Christ and rely on him to sanctify rather than your own efforts, you're going to not only rely on Christ, but you're going to rely on the means that he's given you to be sanctified, the church. <laughs> this is why James tells us to confess your sins to one another, that you may be healed. There, there's no such thing as a lone Christian. God, God has designed us to be a people that are dependent on each other. 
then the other thing we see is that Jesus says that he will give those who rest, those who are laboring, those who are heavy laden, those who are just exhausted, he's going to give them rest. In Proverbs 1, verses 20 through 23, we see this picture of lady wisdom on the streets crying out in a loud voice for everyone, the foolish, those who think they're wise, those who need wisdom, those who are rare of it, everyone, to come to her for wisdom so that she can give them peace, so that she can give them rest, that they, they don't have to be concerned about the distress that, that would await them. And we see a very similar picture right here where we see Jesus crying out, the very personification of wisdom, the very person who all, not some, not most, but all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in him. We see him crying out for everyone to come to him. And then we look at James 1, 2 through 5. In fact, let's, let's turn there real quick. James 1, 2 through 5. <clears throat> Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Unless steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We often read that, that verse and we forget that it's in the context of trials. What he's saying here is that when you are in trials, when you are suffering, and when you need wisdom on how to get through it, go to God because he's going to give you the abundance of wisdom you need to get through it. He's not just going to give you just enough wisdom. He's going to give you an overflowing amount of it. Last month, I went to a biblical counseling conference, and Dale Johnson made the point that you look at James, you look at Proverbs, and you look at this passage where you see essentially wisdom crying out for everyone to come to him. And then in James, you see God calling everyone to come to him for wisdom. And the point that this biblical counsel made is that life exposes where your wisdom is. Suffering, trials, affliction is going to expose where you really go to for wisdom. Are you going to go to scripture that is sufficient to equip you for every good work? That, that has everything pertaining to life and godliness? Or are you going to go to something outside of it? And in verse 29, we see the second command, which is not only to come to him, but to take, take his yoke. And see, the yoke, this, this, a yoke is, is that wooden device you put on an ox so that he can pull, pull that heavy luggage behind him. And, and we look at that, and it's supposed to, to resemble like a, a sense of slavery or serv servanthood. Um, I mean, that's what a Christian is. A Christian is a slave to Christ. And the, the world looks at that as, it's, as if it's a bad thing. You know, that, that, that's an honor to be a slave to Christ. I mean, what's the alternative? It's to be a slave to Satan. There's no neutrality. It's always going to be one of those two things. You know, when, when Paul, in the, in the introduction of Romans, he, he, he doesn't just introduce himself as an apostle. He introduces himself as a slave to Christ, as a doulos. And in fact, James, the very blood brother of Christ, in his introduction, he doesn't introduce himself as the brother of Christ. What does he introduce himself as? 
the, the slave of Christ. He takes more pride in being a slave to Christ than his own blood brother. And when you have this yoke, that's essentially you, you agreeing to a life of discipleship to Christ. In Christ, in, in Luke chapter 9, verse 23, he says this, that, and he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Being a disciple to Christ is not only obeying or following Christ when it's convenient for you, it's obeying him whenever he commands it, despite how you feel. And the third command is he tells us to take his yoke and to learn from him. See, one of the ways that Christ teaches us is just through his example. In John 13, 15, when, when, when Jesus is, is, is explaining to his uh, disciples on what it means to serve each other, he says, For I have given you an example that you, ha- you should do just as I have done, washing each other's feet. He had just finished washing his own disciples' feet at this point. Another example is uh, in 1 Peter 2.21, when Peter is encouraging the Christians to suffer well, what does he say? He says, for to this you have been called by Christ, uh, because Christ has also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. When, when Paul is reminding the Philippians to put on this constant uh, cloak of humility, what's he point them to? He points them to have a, this mind of Christ before you. He points him to Christ's example and how, how he, uh, being God, emptied himself to be a servant. And another way that Christ teaches us is just by allowing us to go through trials. <laughs> you know, like I said, trials is what rips out all that pride and self, sense of self-sufficiency in you. If you ever pray for humility, be very careful because that's always how it's going to come. And that's an encouragement for us is because when it doesn't matter how small or how great your trial is, it doesn't matter what suffering or affliction you're going through, it's always being used to teach you something. And the second that we have the mentality of just caring more about our problems going away or our constants going away, rather than learning what God's teaching us, we're, we're, we're not going to be learning the way he wants us to. We don't have a teachable spirit. And one one thing that trial teach, trials teaches us is just how vain a life of comfort really is. It teaches just how vain the, the, all the treasures of this world are and how they're fleeting they are. Proverbs thirty eight through nine um, says, "Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord?" We, we, we should all be praying like this. <laughs> we're, we're praying not for, just for prosperity, but we're praying, God, just give me enough I, that I need so that I keep coming to you for help. Th- this is why in the Lord's Prayer, we're told to pray for our daily bread, not our week's worth of bread. God doesn't want us to put our hope in this, this week's worth of stockpile that we have. He wants us to keep coming to him for wisdom, for deliverance, for hope. And one, one the, the big reason trials teaches us is not because of the trials themselves. See, oftentimes we, we become pride, especially as we grow in age, we become prideful of what we've been through. Um, trials aren't what give us wisdom. It's the scriptures that those trials drive us, drive us deeper into that gives us wisdom. 
Tom Askell, he, he uh, I don't have the exact quote, so I'm going to butcher it, but he, he said something along the lines of, it doesn't matter how many Puritans you read, it doesn't matter how many life experiences you have, it doesn't matter all the commentaries you read, those things are only beneficial if they give you a deeper understanding of Scripture. When you look at Jesus he and his relationship with the apostles, you see that he was constantly in teaching mode. He never took a break. He was always teaching them something. Um, and the goal was to conform them to be more like him. Um, everyone turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 13 real quick. The, I call it the love chapter. <laughs> 1 Corinthians chapter 13. And we're going to look at verses 4 through 7 where we see a description of what love actually is. <clears throat> love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice in, at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, and hopes all things, endures all things. You know, you, w- one thing you can do is if you, if you take all those times that mentions the word love and you replace it with the word Jesus, you get a very clear picture on the character of Jesus. Jesus is patient. Jesus is kind. Jesus does not insist on his own way. Jesus is not resentful. Jesus endures all things. And, and one, one thing I promise everyone in this room is that every single one of us, um, right now God is stretching you in one of these characteristics. It may be in a small way or a big way. It may be through a big trial that, that you're going through or a small trial. Um, it may be that God has allowed in his sovereignty to allow someone to sin against you in a grievous, painful way where you're forced to exercise these things. God is always going to put you in, in situations where you're forced to, to, to be more patient. He's going to put, put you in situations where you're forced to bear all things, no matter how heinous or painful it is. He's going to force you to, be, to grow in your forgiveness. He's going to force you to grow in your love for that person, even when they're hard to love. Sheep aren't easy to love. They bite. <laughs> And we look at the, the, next, the next verse in Matthew 11, <clears throat> the second half of verse 29, and we see the heart of Jesus. Specifically, the first thing we see is that Jesus is gentle. And here, G- Jesus is making an enticing argument on why you should obey my command to come to me. And one of the reasons is that he's gentle. <clears throat> Isaiah 40, 11 says this, he will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. See, we, we, we don't see this picture of this impatient shepherd just with his rod, just beating his sheep, trying to, trying to force them to go down the path. We see a, a shepherd who's patient, who's gently leading them, not, not rushing them. He's going at their pace. When, when you have a, a lamb who, who is just weak and and struggling he picks them up and carries them when you when you have a a, a sheep who has little lambs that she's trying to, to juggle kids with jesus is, is accommodating all that meaning that whatever trial we're going through god knows exactly how much of it is best for you 
God is never going to put us in a situation or trial or allow affliction on us and allow us to go uh, a second longer than is necessary. He's not going to allow us to drink one extra drop of affliction that, that isn't for our own good or to endure for a second longer. In fact, just, just think of how we see Jesus' gentleness when he chastises. <clears throat> you know, as a lot of you parents can look back on the way you, you rose your kids. Um, and I'm sure many of you had that one kid that, that you look back and you wish that you disciplined them harder. <laughs> and then you have that other kid that you look back and he's like, okay, I, I was too hard. They would have been better if I was just more gentle. You, you don't see that with Jesus. <laughs> In fact... One of, my, one of the most encouraging passages for me is when you see the way Jesus rebukes Peter. You know, when, when, when Peter, moments after being told that he was going to be the, the foundation for the church, you have Jesus come and say how he must suffer all things, how he must die, and then he rose again. And Peter, hot-headed Peter comes up, pulls him aside, well-intentioned, and he said, he rebukes Jesus, the, the, the God-man. And what, how does Jesus rebuke him? Get behind me, Satan. <laughs> that, that is a very harsh rebuke. But you look at, look at how he rebukes Peter when he denied him three times. That, that was a, hein, a heinous sin. He, he rejected Jesus outright. Not once, not twice, but three times. And Jesus doesn't do anything more than just give him a gentle look. Which caused Peter just to run, around, run away weeping. And the reason that is is because Jesus knew that anything more than just a look was going to break the bruised reed. Meaning, meaning that if God is chastising you right now for a sin, maybe it's a big sin, maybe it's just a habitual sin you've been struggling with, um, it's for your good. You should be thanking him for this. And God's never going to allow it to last longer than it has to. In fact, he's going to use this to teach you on how to counsel and minister to other people who are going to make the same mistake. You're going to be a person who can comfort others with the comfort you've received. And we also see the lowliness of Jesus. Philippians paints this picture of how you see God, Jesus, fully God, all authority, all power. And what he does is he gives all that up to dwell with the, the trash of the world, to die of criminal's death, to be shamed, to be spat on, to be beaten by the very creatures he's made. In fact, when, when Jesus says that when you give the least of these in my kingdom a cup of water, he, he, he receives that as if you're giving it to the king himself. He, he has such a close relationship and, and identifies with even the weakest of us. And, and that, should be, that should be a good reminder for us is we're, we're not above that. Either. We're not greater than our master. You know, when, whenever someone sins against us, even in a grievous way, we need to be like Jesus where we are willing to sacrifice our own comforts, but we're willing to pay the cost for reconciliation. You know, we, in fact, the best way to know the areas that you're weakest in it's not by taking a personality test. It's not by going to the Enneagram. It's by getting a clearer picture of who Jesus is. You see that in Isaiah 6, don't you? 
you know, Isaiah, it wasn't until he saw God in his full glory that he fell down and realized just how utterly needy he was and how guilty he was. And what that does is it doesn't, it shouldn't produce a sense of sorrow and hopelessness for the Christians, but it should produce a greater one sense of dependency, but also a greater um, love and gratefulness for just what Jesus has done for someone like you. And it doesn't just say that Jesus is gentle and lowly. It says that he's gentle and lowly and hurt. You know, um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this, Dane Oakland, the author of Gentle and Lowly, he made a very good point that the, you, when you look at Jesus, you don't have to provoke him to gentleness. You don't have to provoke him to be loving. You don't have to provoke him to be patient. You have to provoke him to be angry. And even then, he's patient. He's long-suffering doing that. You have to really provoke him. Meaning, we, we shouldn't, whenever we pray or go to God, whenever we ask him for forgiveness, when we ask for um, strength to get through a situation, we shouldn't have this mentality that God's out to get us. We shouldn't have this mentality that God's abandoned us. We should have a mentality that those are the ones that God loves to help the most. And that, that's the complete opposite of us. We, have, we, we are easily provoked to anger. Honestly, you have to provoke us to love each other. <laughs> In verse 29, Jesus says that you will find rest for your souls if you come to me. And Jesus here is he's, he's, he's citing Jeremiah 6, 16, where, where God is talking to his covenant people, telling them that if you just obey me, this is where the covenant blessings are. Stop trying to go these other paths. And so often what we try to do is whenever we're suffering, whenever we're hurting, whenever we're affliction, we, don't, we, try, we try to go to any other thing other than Christ for rest. You know, the, if you struggle with a bank account, with finances, you're, you're, the, the solution is not a better, more money. <laughs> it's, it's, it's Christ. It's to know Christ better. If you struggle with a bad marriage, the solution isn't a good marriage. It's, it's to know Christ better. Christ's will isn't always to take that throne out of your flesh. Sometimes it's meant to, his will is to leave it there so that all that pride and self-sufficiency is painfully ripped out of you. And then he says this, that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. This is completely different from how we see the Pharisees. The, their yoke was one that was just crushing you, that was discouraging, that left you hopeless. And the interesting thing here is, is you read the Sermon on the Mount. And what is, what's the whole point of that sermon? Jesus is taking the law of the Pharisees, and he's escalating it. He's, he's telling you that the Pharisees are telling you, don't commit adultery. I'm saying, rip, I'm saying that you can't even look at a woman with lust. They say you can't murder. I'm saying you can't even be angry with that person. Which it doesn't, it, it, it's hard to reconcile with that. Jesus is saying that that, even high, more high es, um, escalated law, way of living that he's placing, that's lighter than what the Pharisees are doing. It seems completely backwards. And the reason that's not the case is because those things don't earn your salvation. Being a good person doesn't earn your salvation. You do those things because of a gratefulness for receiving salvation. And think, just think of the alternative is not just with the Pharisees, but with Satan. 
You know, the yoke we had before coming to Christ was we were a slave to the prince of the, the power of the air. You know, this was a guy who worked all things for our bad. This was someone who was constantly forcing us uh, poison day after day. He was out to destroy us. He, he wanted to destroy us, our families, our relationships, our friends, everything. And so often you have people come up to you and they, they accuse God of being this maniacal, evil person who's just out to get you. And they're really describing Satan. Listen to this quote by Derek Bingham. I gave him a crown of thorns. He gave me a crown of righteousness. I gave him a cross to carry. He gave me his yoke, which is easy, his burden, which is light. I gave him nails through his hand. He gave me safely into his father's hands, which no, no power can pluck me. I gave him a mock title. This is the king of the Jews. He gave me a new name and made me a king and a priest to God. I gave him no covering, no stripping his clothes from him. He gave me a garment of salvation. I gave him mockery. He gave me paradise. I gave him vinegar to drink. He gave me living water. I crucified and slew him on a tree. He gave me eternal life. It was my sinfulness that put him there, and it was his sinlessness that put me here. The Greek word used here to describe the yoke isn't, I, I don't like the term his yoke is easy. The, a better translation is that his yoke is kind. That's how the word translates. And that's exactly what we see here. You know, that, that, that's the difference between us being a legalist and us just being a follower of Christ is that, you know, we're, we're doing these things out of a, a love for God, not out of an obligation. The second we start trying to obey God just to mark it off a checklist, we're going to labor. And we're going to be discouraged and we're going to be just crushed because that's not how God intended the law to be for the believers. This is exactly why you can see David in Psalm 119 say that uh, he loves and cherishes the law and he meditates on his day and night. And I, I want to I close with this. is one thing that every Christian needs to be good at is giving hope. I mean, we're the only people that can give it. And we live in a world that is hopeless, that has no gospel, that, that, that does not believe the gospel, that most of them haven't even heard of it. And we, we, we need to be well-equipped with Scripture to be able to point them to particular places where we can give them hope. This is a perfect text to point them to for the Christian and unbeliever. You know, if you're, if you're an unbeliever here, Christ is telling you to come to him, to put off that yoke of slavery to Satan that's poisoning and destroying you, and to take on his yoke. The reason it's so light is because the only thing you need to do is believe. You don't need to do anything else. And for the Christian who's just suffering and discouraged, oftentimes we, we have this view that a biblical view of God is just being, a, just being scared of him. That, that, that's not what biblical fear means. A biblical fear means having a reverent view of God where you're seeing all of his attributes the way they should be. You're seeing his mercy just as much as his wrath. And so I, I wouldn't, everyone just, there's going to be situations where you are always going to minister to someone and they may be going through something heinous or painful that you don't even know what to say. You can never go wrong with just pointing them to Jesus. Let's, uh, let's go to God in prayer.
Father, we, we thank you that you have uh, revealed your son to us. Father, we thank you that you, that you removed the spiritual cataracts from us even though we didn't deserve it. We praise you that you've sent your son. Jesus, we praise you for dying the death that we deserve. We praise you for being our good shepherd. Every trial, every chastisement, every punishment that you've given us for our good, we praise you and we thank you. Father, we ask that you make us into people that have a teachable spirit, that, that, are, that want to learn from you. Someone who doesn't resist your yoke, but we kiss it, we embrace it, we love it. And Father, we ask that for every unbeliever here, that you show them that their works are just vain. We show them that the rest that they will find is only in you. And Father, we pray that you, you, uh, you just be with us throughout the week and that you help us remember these truths. In your son's name we pray, amen.